Again, good morning, church. We're excited to get into our study this morning in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. If you have your Bibles, please take them and turn there. We're going to talk about oneness in Jesus Christ this morning. Oneness in Jesus Christ. As we uh, transition over the next few weeks with uh, staff members, I want you to say a prayer for Andy and Heather that God would continue to help them and direct them, and then for David and Rebecca as they come in. Um, Andy, when he came to us, had told me, Pastor, I, I feel like someday God wants me to be in the senior pastorate, uh, but I don't see that happening for five to ten years. And I'm like, yeah, right. I've, I've been doing this for 27 years, so usually you can figure about half that time. And, um, and it was just God was moving in his heart and kind of leading him to that place where he felt like he might needed to be in the, that role. And so we had a conversation here back a, several months ago after he came back from a missions trip, and it was apparent that that's what God was doing in his life. And I'll say this, uh, had he gone from where he was in Oklahoma straight to the pastorate, he may have had a few struggles, but as he has been able to be here at Desert Hills, and be able to be a part of a balanced ministry where we're not only concerned about evangelism, we're concerned about discipleship, we're concerned about unity in the church, we're concerned about reaching everybody that will listen to the sound of the voice of the gospel and help to further them in their faith, and then also doing things uh, uh, in, a, in a right order business-wise as the church uh, moves forward and, and reputable and accountable and all of those things. Uh, not that he would not have had those things in particular, but I'll tell you, he's got more of a foundation than he ever would have had he not come here. And we're grateful for that opportunity, and I look at it as we're sending him off. We're launching him into this place where he gets to serve God and, and, and pierce some holes in the darkness there in Oregon. And so uh, he goes from the desert, him and his family, to the place where there's more rain than you can imagine. So, uh, so but say a prayer for him. Now, in our text, we find a picture of the body of Christ being one. In fact, Ephesians is the book that speaks about the seven unities of God immediately after Paul is used of God to instruct the Ephesians to walk in unity. In fact, here's what it says in Ephesians 4, verse 3. It says, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. In other words, unity is not something that happens automatically. It's something that is going to take some work or some effort or some dying to oneself. And then it says this, there is one body, one spirit, even as you're called, one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. As I mentioned, unity does not happen automatically. And let me say this and stress this, unity is not the same thing as unanimity. Unanimity is believing exactly the same thing about everything. And it's very rare to find a situation, even in a relationship, where there's always unanimity. I'm looking at uh, some young families, been married maybe just a few years, uh, uh, and uh, let me ask you, Van Burens, have you always been in agreement? No. It's because you're wrong, right? No, 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 no. It just, it just happens. Uh, I'm looking at some others. Tom, uh, uh, you and Sherry, have you always had unanimity? Sometimes. So that's not always, is it? You, you're a chicken. <laughs> you, won't, you won't say. You've been married long enough to know better. Now, in a relationship, we don't always have unanimity, 
But in spite of not agreeing on everything, you can have unity. You can have unity. And we see the seven unities. What keeps uh, the church endeavoring to, uh, to keep the unity in the spirit of the bond of peace? Because there's one Lord, there's one faith, there's one body, there's one spirit, one hope of our calling, one baptism, one God and Father of all. It takes people dying to themselves and being filled with the spirit. And, and we understand that unity and oneness are not as common as division is in our world. Now, we see division all around us. All you have to do is turn on the news today, and you see division. Now, in our recent history, we see uh, there's divisions in politics. In fact, in the 30s and 40s, there was a division in politics between the Nazi socialist and the rest of Europe. And here you have Benito Mussolini, and here you have Adolf Hitler. And as a result of their war, their axis of evil, at the end of it, 11 million people died. Uh, Three million plus Jews died, uh, not including uh, everybody else that was wrapped up in that. Because the Nazi socialists wanted to propagate their Aryan nation and philosophy, and Mussolini tagged along with that, the end result was 11 million people died. Now, we see division between Russian communists and the uh, monarch capitalists in Russia. And this man was mostly responsible for that. We understand uh, Vladimir Lenin uh, uh, took over uh, the, in the Bolshevik Revolution, and, and then uh, Stalin came along. Most people believe that Stalin assassinated Lenin, if you read the history. And as a result of Stalin's acts of terror, between 90, excuse me, between 9 and 60 million people died because of that political division. We see that in, in China, when the Chinese communists took over the Chinese nationalists, and this man, Mao Zedong, killed between 40 and 80 million people. Can you imagine that? 80 million people would be one quarter of the, almost one quarter of the population of the United States. Think about that. That's what happened because of political division. We see division in Cambodia in the 60s and 70s between the uh, Cambodian communists and the Cambodian monarchist nationalists, and the end result was uh, the killing fields where I've been to the killing fields in 2001. I've also been to Tulsing Prison where anybody that had any education, anybody that had any uh, power before uh, the Pol Pot took over and the Khmer Rouge took over, they were put in this prison and ultimately led to their execution. But the end result was about 2 million people dead, not including all of the people over the many years, including till today, that have lost legs, that have lost uh, well-being because of mines that have been planted all over the Cambodian countryside because of political division. We see ethnic division in our recent history. I remember in the 90s, there was the conflict uh, in Rwanda between the Hutus and the Tutsis. And this ethnic conflict, if you were to look at the Hutus and Tutsis, they would look very similar. Their skin color is the same. Their background is, is the same. They've lived and, and worked and, and, and roamed around, um, among each other for years. But the end result, because of the ethnic hatred was over a half a million people were dead. That's in 
the 1990s. Not only that, uh, there was ethnic division between uh, the Serbs and the Croats when Yugoslavia broke up and became Bosnia, Herzegovina, and, and there were the Muslims and the Christians. Uh, the end result of that ethnic division was 100,000 people were dead. In the early 1900s or 1800s, there was division between the Turks and the Armenians. And the end result was almost one and a half million people, Armenians, were dead because of ethnic divisions. Now, we see racial division in our own recent history, racial animus uh, uh, in, uh, towards the Italians and the Irish and the Mexicans and the Jews and the blacks. And even some of you experience maybe at some time in your life some racism because of the division or the walls that people have put up towards you. Now, we've all seen people put up these walls of division, walls that keep people from having any kind of unity and oneness. And in our text, God is using the apostle Paul to help the church understand the opportunity for oneness in Jesus Christ but he starts by explaining man's estrangement. Man's estrangement. If you look at verse 11, man's estrangement. Now, R. Kent Hughes, uh, in his commentary on Ephesians, says this. A study of the history of the ancient world tells us that none of the today's social distinctions, none of our racial barriers, none of our uh, narrow nationalisms, none of our iron curtains are more exclusive or unrelenting than the separation between the Jews and the Gentiles in Bible times. Now, the Jews believed the Gentiles were created, think about this, they believed the Gentiles were created to fuel the fires of hell. That's what they believed. A common motto was, the best serpents crush, the best of Gentiles kill. It wasn't even lawful to aid a Gentile woman in giving birth, for that would bring another heathen into the world, according to the Jews in biblical times. The Gentiles also had a vehement hatred for those they considered barbarians, which included the Jews. Plato said that the barbarians, anyone non-Greek, were his enemies by nature. The prejudice between Jews and Gentiles created a huge barrier. The Gentiles were dogs in Jewish idealism, and the Jews were homicidal enemies of the human race. And, and our text bears this animus out. Paul is trying to deal with this head-on as he writes these words in verse 11. He says, Wherefore remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by that which is called circumcision in the flesh made by hands. Now the question could be asked, why was there such an animus? Why was there such an estrangement? It wasn't because of social or political or cultural reasons. Now, Paul had just got done sharing in verses 1 through 10 how both Jews and Gentiles were estranged from God because they were dead in their trespasses and sins and without Christ. Now, this same estrangement from God showed up in their relationship with others. And that's why there was such an animosity, because of their sin nature. And Paul wants the believers at Ephesus to recall and to remember and take notice to some things. And notice what it says in verse 12. It says that at the time you were without Christ, 
being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And, and so here Ephesians speaks of how Gentiles were estranged from God and his truth in at least five ways. The first of which, it was the Gentiles were without Christ. For hundreds of years, the Jews waited for their Messiah. Now, the first messianic promise was given in Genesis chapter 3, where it says this, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Uh, immediately after the fall of man, after the serpent beguiled uh, Eve, and, and then Adam consciously went on and sinned and, and, and plunged all of the human race uh, into sin and the curse and all the things and the ramifications that came with it, immediately after the fall of man, God promised the Messiah. God promised the Redeemer. He said that the Messiah would crush the head of the serpent. The Messiah would come and give hope. The Messiah would come and give life. The Messiah would stamp out that which took away life, that's what the Messiah would do. And so the Jews were waiting for their Messiah. And from that time until the Messiah came, God gave the people pictures to remember his promise in the Old Testament. Uh, the ark that saved the peoples of the world in Genesis chapter 6 is a picture of the, what the Messiah would do someday for us. And I could go on and on through the Old Testament. Now, the Jews were awaiting their Messiah. And when he came... Most of them missed him. They didn't understand the significance and the life of Jesus and his ministry. Some of them believed, and more of them believed by the time of the writing of Ephesians. And so God was using the message of the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one to change the world, but the Gentiles didn't have an inkling or a comprehension about Christ until the Christians gave the message to them before salvation, they were estranged from the concept and the reality of Christ, the Messiah. Secondly, the Gentiles were estranged in that they were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, the Bible says. You see, the Gentiles were excluded from the theocratic nation of Israel. They were estranged, they were alienated, they were excluded, they were not considered in God's promises to his chosen people of the Old Testament. Thirdly, they were strangers from the covenants of promise, the Bible says. Now, in, in Genesis chapter 12, God established the Abrahamic covenant. The Bible says, strangers from the covenant of promise. And God said uh, to Abraham, he says, I'm going to make of you a great nation. I'm going to bless you as uh, uh, the sands, uh, the grains of sand and the sea as the stars are up in heaven. That's how I'm going to make your people go throughout all the earth. And he said, and I'm going to bless them that bless you. And I'm going to curse them that curse you. And in you you shall all the lands of the earth be blessed. He told them he was going to give them a land. He told them he was give, going to give them a people. He told them he was going to give them his blessing. And then in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promised uh, the Davidic covenant where God was going to give uh, the people a king through the tribe of Judah, uh, ultimately known as David, and, and the seed of David would have a kingdom that would never end. And that kingdom would manifest itself in the person of Jesus Christ. We see the Gentiles, all of that was strange to them. They were strangers from the covenants of promise. And then we see another way they were estranged. They had no hope. Notice what the Bible says. It says that at times you were without Christ having no hope. You see, the Gentiles had no hope of a personal Messiah or deliverer. 
At best, they had a dead religion of statues and idols with ears that could not hear, with eyes that could not see, with mouths that could not speak. They were hopeless. The best they had was what they saw in the world. Here's what Theogenes, a famous Greek philosopher, wrote. He said, I will try to have a good time while I'm young because I will lie under the earth for a long time voiceless as a stone, and I shall leave the sunlight that I love, then I shall see no more. Have a good time, my soul, while young. Soon others will take my place, and I shall be in the black earth in death. No mortal is happy under the sun. Many of the Gentiles lived this way without hope. And then there was another way that the Gentiles were estranged. They were without God in the world. The phrase without God in the world has the idea of being totally apart from God. They may have been reaching out to God, but they were reaching out to God with their works. They were reaching out to God with their dead rituals. They were reaching out to God with their empty sacrifices. They were estranged in the worst possible way. We see not only the text speaking about man's estrangement, but we also see the text speaking about the peace that was brought through Jesus Christ. You see, God is using Paul to make a point that Gentiles and all men have been estranged in the past from God because of their sin. And now notice what verse 13 says. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were sometimes afar off are made nigh by the blood of Jesus Christ. But now, indicating there was a past condition... But because of their new position in Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ was in them, and they were in Jesus Christ. They recognized as sinners they needed a Savior. They placed their faith and trust in Jesus as their Savior. And as a result, they were in Christ, and Christ was in them. Those who were afar off were brought close to God by the sacrifice given through the blood of Jesus Christ. And as we dig into this, we see this affirmation of peace the text talks about. Notice verse 14. For he is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. Because he is our peace, literally, Jesus is the peacemaker between us and the Godhead. In the Greek, it's, it's literally speaking of he himself. And in the Greek, that, that phrase, he, is powerfully emphasized, and the emphasize is meant to strike us to the soul. He, God, did this for us. He did this on our behalf. We were estranged, but God made the first move. We were alienated. We were strangers. We were incapable of bridging the gap and, and restoring the relationship. But he, Jesus, made our peace. He is our peace. And as our peace, the Bible says he has made both one and has broken down the barrier, the dividing wall that separated God from man. Now, some believe the language is speaking of Herod's temple, where there was a great wall which separated the court of the Gentiles and the rest of the temple. And on that wall was an inscription in Latin and in Greek forbidding Gentiles to enter. In fact, Josephus, the historian, spoke of these inscriptions that read, No foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. So some people believe that's the wall that the Bible is speaking of. 
Now, I believe more than this, Paul is saying that Christ has ripped down the wall, the man-contrived barriers the, that man erects by his death. And because of this, Jews and Gentiles have access to God and can have spiritual unity and peace. Now, the answer, answer to vertical with God and horizontal with man, estrangement or division or disunity is not intellectual. It's not getting people more information necessarily. It's not enacting new laws. It's not getting social reform. It's not political. It's not social, but it's spiritual. You see, the answer comes when the cross the, the, breaks down the barrier by receiving Jesus Christ's sacrifice as our own, and we come near to God. And then, as we come near to God, we get near to each other because we realize we have made peace with God and have the possibility of peace with others in our lives. You know, many in our society are trying to manufacture peace. They don't get it. We're going to enact this law. We're going to tone down the, uh, the, the, all the... Uh, Spirits that are, are upset, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, and we're going to thereby bring peace. That's not the solution. Now, I'm not against laws. I'm not, I'm not speaking to that this morning. But what I am saying is that if we really want change, we really want reform, we really want something to, to be different than it is, it's not going to start with any of that. It's going to start with Jesus. In fact... There are probably some people that came this morning to church, and on your way to church, there was conflict. There was division. There was words exchanged. I remember uh, when we had one vehicle, and, and uh, uh, my wife would, uh, would get the kids ready for church, and she always seemed to be running behind. And I remember I'd sit in the car, and I'm, I'm like, okay, babe, I'm the pastor. I need to be there early. And then she finally said to me, and I would get upset with her, and she'd finally say to me, well, if you want to be there early, why don't you help me get the kids ready? <laughs> but even when I tried to help her get the kids ready, we were still late. <laughs> and so there was a solution. It was Jesus, plus I got another car. <laughs> Amen? <laughs> But you know what? Maybe there was a conflict this morning. Maybe you're in the middle of a conflict. Maybe you came to church and you as husband and wife didn't even sleep in the same bed because that's how mad you are with one another. You didn't want to share the same domain as your spouse because you're right and they're wrong and you want to let them know. Or maybe you're estranged from a family member, a mom or a dad or a brother or a sister. Or maybe you're estranged from a coworker and there's division and there's disunity. And your division and your disunity is causing disharmony in your workplace. Well, let me help you understand. If you're a believer, you need to understand that Jesus is your peace. And he's the one that breaks down those barriers which cause division, and disunity. Now, how did Jesus make peace? First of all, the Bible speaks of he abolished the law and commandments. Notice what it says in verse 15. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, the enemy, even the law of commandments contained in ordinance. Now, how did Jesus do this? 
Didn't Jesus explain in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am come not to destroy, but to fulfill. Let me explain a little bit. Christ fulfilled the moral law, living up to all of its requirements. He was the spotless lamb without spot, the blameless lamb without spot that offered himself for us. In that, he abolished also the Jewish ceremonial law. Because of this, the stipulations of the ceremonial law, the washings, the Sabbath and diet restrictions, the way that the law told the people how to live and how to interact and even, even how to be intimate, all of that which had been a grievous barrier were now gone. And since he fulfilled the moral law, taking away its condemnation, all in Christ Jesus, both Jew and Gentile, have access to God through grace. Remember, the Bible says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. You see, the enmity, the enemy, the law, which was a divider between Jew and Gentile, is gone to those in Jesus Christ. And let me say this, the things that often separate us in our Christianity, I see things that are unnecessary divisions in Christianity. I see sometimes Bible versions being an unnecessary division in Christianity. I see homeschool and non-homeschool as an unnecessary division in Christianity. I see people saying, okay, I'm an essential oil person, or I'm a doctor person as being an unnecessary division in Christianity. And there are all kinds of things that divide us in Christianity. Well, the Bible says that Jesus Jesus tore those things down. He tore them down. And then we see something else. How did Jesus make peace? He created a new people. For to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace. And then he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. You see, Jesus didn't Christianize the Jews or Judaize the Christians. He created an entirely new people, the Bible says, to make in himself of two one new man making peace. The picture is of what the church should look like, a new people who have made peace because we have all made peace with God. In fact, it's described in verse 10. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. This new people, the church is God's masterpiece and the answer to estrangement, to racial prejudice, to ethnic animosity, to cultural hatred. The church of Jesus Christ is to be at peace with one another. If there's a place where diversity should be present, it's the church. If there's a place where people of all backgrounds and ethnicities and skin tones and cultures meld together under the banner of Jesus Christ, standing upon the word of God, it's the church. Again, verse 16, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. Jesus abolished in the killing of his own body on the cross the hostility or enmity between Jews and Gentiles and of all mankind. This is a reality in the lives of believers and this should be a reality in churches where Jesus truly reigns. We see not only an affirmation of peace, 
but we see a revelation of peace. Notice what the Bible says, and came, speaking of Jesus, and preached peace to you which were afar off, Gentiles, and to them that were nigh, speaking of Jews. It's interesting, in Isaiah chapter 9, Jesus is called the Wonderful Counselor, uh, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father. And what's that last phrase? Say it with me. The Prince of Peace. Isaiah prophesied that through him, Jesus, the Messiah, uh, peace would be preached. And it says this in Isaiah 57, verse 19. I create of the fruit of the lips peace, peace to him that is afar off, speaking of Gentiles, and to him that is near, speaking of Jews, saith the Lord, I will heal him. At his incarnation, when he came into the world, the angels cried out, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, what? Peace, goodwill towards men. Before he went through the passion, uh, he prepared his disciples, and this is what he said in John chapter 14, peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, let it not be afraid. And then as we look at the text again, it says, and he came and preached peace to you that were afar off, Gentiles, and to them that were nigh, the Jews. He preached peace because he is the prince of peace and the only one that can truly bring peace to the world. We may not know it and see it in our lifetime, but there's coming a day when the world will be at total peace. Here's what verse 18 says. It says, For through him we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. You see, because believers have contact with the Father through the Son and are directed by the Holy Spirit, we have peace with all who are in contact with the Father and Son and Spirit. In other words, because we're in union, we should be in unity. Now, one last thing this morning. The church's present identity as spoken of here in the text. We see it's described as a new nation. Now, history records that Citizenship was an even greater source of pride in the ancient world than it is today. In the Greco-Roman culture to which Paul was writing in Ephesus, citizenship was highly personal. One city or polis provided one's identity. The city's laws were part of one's beings. Uh, its custom, a source of pride. Its inhabitants were all lifelong friends. They would see each other in another nation, and they would say, you're from what city? Oh, that's my city too. And there was instant camaraderie and friendship. That is why Paul was used of God to write in verse 19, now therefore you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints. He wanted the church to understand that they were a part of a new nation. Now this was greater news than to be told that they were Roman citizens. They had once been estranged and strangers and aliens and foreigns, foreigners, but now in Christ Jesus they were a part of a nation of saints with an allegiance far deeper than any national pride. Now, I understand in just a few days, it is uh, uh, the 26th today, in just a few days, we are going to celebrate um, uh, a birth of our nation once again. 246 years this year. I didn't realize that. It's 246. A week from uh, Monday, a week from tomorrow, we celebrate um, the 246th anniversary of our birth as a nation. And I'll tell you, I've been to a few places around the world, and I don't care what anybody says about America, there's no place like America. 
There's no place like it. I've been to Southeast Asia. I've been to Latin America. I've been to other places around the world. There's no place like America. I've been to uh, the capital. In fact, just a few years ago, we walked, uh, uh, took the tour of the capital and, and got to go into the chambers and, and uh, got to see all the statues and got to get uh, uh, into the memorabilia. I've been to the White House. I was at the White House when Jimmy Carter was president. Back when I was a kid, we didn't go this last time because you couldn't get in this last time that we were in that area. I've been to the Library of Congress. I've been to all the important buildings around Washington. I've been to Arlington National Cemetery. When I was a kid, I remember walking down these rows of crosses, and as a kid, I, I thought to my, my mom and dad, I thought, why are we walking amongst these rows of crosses? I mean, we had just come from the Smithsonian uh, Museum, and I thought, that's where a kid wants to go. We had just come from the White House and the Capitol and all these places, and my mom and dad were walking these rows of crosses, and all of a sudden I saw my, my mom drop to the ground, and she got on her knees, and she just started weeping, and she said they were so young as tears were falling from her eyes. They were so young. And then as those tears were falling from her eyes, she said, but they gave their lives for us. I love America. Well, I hear the star-spangled banner and I still get tingles. I love America. But you know, and I'm careful with this, the citizenship that we have here on earth is nothing compared to the citizenship that we have in heaven. And God has made of his people a new nation. In fact, here's how Peter describes it. You are a chosen generation. Literally, you are chosen to reach this generation. You are a royal priesthood bringing royal sacrifices. You are a holy nation, not the nation of America, the nation meaning God's people, every Christian in whatever nation that they physically reside in. You are a holy nation. And then what's it say? You're a peculiar people. Some of us more peculiar than others, amen? <laughs> Why? That we should show forth the praises of him who hath called us out of darkness into the marvelous light. We see not only has God made a new nation, God has made a new family. It says, Now therefore you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. Now being a part of the same family, we call God by the same name, Father, Abba, Father. And his spirit bears witness to our spirit that we are the children of God. Being a part of God's family, we should understand that family is a place where we can be who God created us to be and accept and love our brothers and sisters in Christ. In fact, here's how John puts it in 1 John chapter 3. He says, we know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Hereby we perceive the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. 
But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? And then John sums it up. He says, my little children, let us not love in tongue, word and tongue, but in deed and in truth. Believers are a new nation. Believers are a new family. And believers are a new building. We're a new building. Notice what it says in verse 20. And are built up upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Now, the reference to being built up upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets is not indicating that the apostles and the prophets are our foundation. But what is being communicated is that God's word from which the apostles and prophets uh, spoke, God's word is our foundation, not our opinions, not our emotions, not what society projects, but the word of God. And the church, which is being spoken of here, is to be built upon the Word of God. In fact, Timothy says this, that the church is to be the church of the living God, and the church is to be the pillar and ground of truth. The church is to uphold what God has said. And then more than that, as you get into the text a little further, here's what it says in verse 20, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. And as we think about this new building, Jesus Christ is the foundation or the cornerstone. Now, the cornerstone in any building was the keystone to making sure the building had stability. And not only that, the cornerstone was to be set and leveled in a certain way whereby every other stone that came upon the cornerstone would be also be level. In fact, this was the most crucial stone. And we understand that in the body known as the church, Jesus Christ is the corner. He is the foundation. He is the corner. He, he makes sure the church is going in the right direction. He's the one on, on which the church is built upon. And not only that, as we look at the book of Peter and see what Peter has to say about this, here's what the Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 2. It says, Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Wherefore, it is also contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Sion a chief cornerstone, elect and precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. It says, Unto you therefore which believe he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. So not only is Jesus the, the cornerstone, but Jesus is also the capstone. He's the one that holds the church together. He's the foundation, and he's the one that holds the church together. And not only that, as you see Peter's text, every one of us, as we're added to the body, this new building of the church, every one of us are a lively stone that God is wanting to build up into a spiritual house. Every one of us, God is wanting to build this beautiful masterpiece to the world. Every one of us are to be a re reflection, a representation of what God is doing in the world today. We are to be the hands and the feet and the body of Jesus Christ to the world today. But what happens if Jesus isn't allowed to be the corner in the church? What happens if Jesus isn't allowed to be the capstone, the one that holds the church together? I want you to understand this morning, I appreciate kindness towards me and I appreciate people following me as a under shepherd, under the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. But I want you to understand something. If I err from the truth, 
don't follow me, follow Jesus. If I go off the deep end, don't follow me, follow Jesus. If something happens to me or one of our staff members here, don't get discouraged. Don't have your eyes focused on us or them. Have your eyes focused on Jesus. You see, he's building a new family. He's building a new nation. And he's building a new building through his church. Let me ask you this morning, what type of building does the world see in us? What does the world see in us? Someone said it well. Christ has no hands but our hands to do his work today. He has no feet but our feet to lead men on his way. He has no help but our help to bring men to his side. He has no tongue but our tongue to tell men how he died. We're the only Bible this careless world will read. We're the sinner's gospel. We're the scoffer's creed. We're the Lord's last message given in deed and word. But what if the type is crooked? And what if the print is blurred. I ask you this morning, are you estranged from God needing to be saved? Is Jesus being allowed to make peace in your life and your relationships? Do we understand that we as Christians, as a part of Christ's body, are a new nation, a new family, and are we representing the building, the church, the body of Christ in a good way to the world?